This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, your co-host and executive producer, as well as the managing director at Health Innovation Media. It's my pleasure to be joined in our state-of-the-art virtual studio by my colleague Fred Goldstein, the co-founder and principal co-host of Pop Health Week and the president of Accountable Health, LLC. Pop Health Week is your trusted source for engaging conversation with top industry leaders and stakeholders from various sectors, including payers, providers, patients, vendors, and the regulatory community. We are dedicated to sharing the most innovative ideas and strategies in population health management. To connect with us, visit www.popupstudio.productions or feel free to send me a direct message on Twitter at Greg Masters MPH, and that is Greg with two G's. Fred can be reached at www.accountablehealthllc.com and do follow him on Twitter via at FS Goldstein. On today's show, we welcome John Watkins, PharmD MPH, who managed the formulary process at Premier Blue Cross from 2000 to 2019. He is currently the director of Primera's PG-1 Managed Care Pharmacy Residency Program and Student Advanced Pharmacy Practice Experience Coordinator. Along with these responsibilities, John manages the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. He's an affiliate professor of pharmacy at the University of Washington. His areas of expertise include health policy, health technology assessment, and application of evidence-based medicine, personalized medicine, economics, and bioethics to formulary and coverage decision-making processes. Now let's pass the microphone to Fred. Over to you. Thanks so much, Greg and John. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to get you on. We're here at the AMCP Nexus 2023 conference. I got introduced to you through a mutual colleague of ours and uh, spoke very highly of you and the work, and I'm really fascinated to get into this book you wrote. But before we get there, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, that's a good question. I originally started out to be a chemist. Uh, This was in the 1970s, mid-70s. There wasn't much of a job market. It was a tough time. And I looked across the way at pharmacy and decided that was a place I wanted to go. Worked in retail pharmacy briefly, moved then over into the hospital side, Uh, worked in Nepal as a pharmacist for seven years, ran a hospital pharmacy there, came back, did a residency, which is later than you usually do, and moved over into managed care from there. So I've in that in the time since the mid '90s, I've worked for a staff model HMO, which is now part of Kaiser Permanente, and two Blues plans. And so, talk a little bit about Nepal. What was your experience there? That's where I first got interested in managing cost of care because I saw scarce resources. Uh, it's a poor country. This was 1980s. Um, I can't speak for what they have now, but at that time, the government had universal free health care, and free was just about the value of what you got. So you might get a diagnosis, but sorry, we don't have any medicine. Uh, It was a and was a tough time for them. But we 
created a system that actually had some aspects of an HMO. Uh, we actually had a plan where you, a family could sign up for a year's worth of membership for the equivalent of about 75 cents U.S., uh, which, of course, this was in mid-1980s dollars. And what would that essentially get them in a benefits package? We had um, some rural health posts outlying from our hospital, so it would get you primary care with what they call a health assistant, uh, which they're graduates of a three-year college-level course, basically like a, a physician assistant here, and referral into our hospital outpatient department. It included uh, admission if you needed to be admitted. So basically, secondary-level care, we did not have an ICU. Um, but we had basic, pretty much the basics of what most people would need. I think we did a good job. I actually, two of my daughters were born in our maternity unit. Fascinating. And there were some pharmaceuticals associated with that, so yeah. access to certain medications? So, we, yeah, we actually had a, a full formulary, which a lot of the things that we could buy generically from not-for-profit sources in Europe, we did. Um, we also bought some things manufactured in India off the local market. But very basic cares, for example, if you have cancer, we couldn't help you. If you had money to go to India, they could help you. We could give you a referral, but we, we, we just didn't have the wherewithal to do that. Right, but you essentially set up a system that provided basic primary care yeah. and some pharmaceuticals and some mm -hmm. referral-type services for 75 cents. Yeah. Fascinating. And when you looked at the formula, did you, I guess you really had to limit that and say, okay, we're going to look at the most effective product based on cost or things like that? If you look at molecular entities, um, the World Health Organization has what they call the essential medicines list. Uh, at that time, which is a basic minimal formulary, at that time it had about 200 molecular entities on it. We had somewhere between three and 400 on ours. When I came back to the U.S. and entered as a pharmacy resident, we had about 900 on ours in a, in a staff model HMO. And so I, I imagine that that really was a major step up for individuals who had no coverage or anything and obviously would have a positive impact on their clinical outcomes, their life, et cetera. Fascinating. So then you come to the United States, and now you're in this system, which is completely different in many ways. So what were some of the things you noticed or that really struck you as you took what you learned over there and brought here? The first thing that really caught my attention in 1990 was the fact that people were starting to talk about health care being too expensive and the need to rein in the cost, which... Looking back on it now, it's, it may seem silly, but the trend was there, and they were worried about it. And so I was in a place in a, in a high-quality staff model HMO that combines good population health practices with um, management of cost. And so what sort of things were they implementing there in terms of a, a formulary for the pharmacy? We had, a, we had an evidence-based formulary process, so that's where I learned how to do uh, formulary drug reviews, as we've done ever since. And um, there was a, 
it was a fairly tightly controlled formulary in that at that time there were no specialty drugs. We're dealing with small molecules, uh, many crowded classes that had brands only, so you have, would have contracting possibilities there. The organization at that time um, did its own contracting later. As I said, it became part of Kaiser, and now they're in that system. But saying it actually was similar to Kaiser, um, only smaller. So you had the combination of contracting for discounts, and the nice thing in a staff model is they're not rebates, they're upfront discounts. You have your own pharmacies and distribution system. And you also have ability to limit classes that have both brand and generic products and go with only the generics unless there is a particular reason to have a brand. So I would assume that plan moved much earlier to a higher generic utilization rate than the rest yeah. of them that we saw that have now moved quite a bit or as much as they can at this point. And I was primarily on the delivery system side of that, so I, I couldn't tell you what the generic rate was, but yes, it was high. And you look at the system now and you say, well, we've now added lots more pharmaceuticals. We have uh, specialty drugs, we have biologics, and all these, so it's gotten rather complicated. Yes, I just came from the specialty pipeline lecture, and it's scary. And what are your thoughts about that as we move into that space? I think basically that we, we have this problem, um, and I've talked about it, that we, we are in this huge codependent ecosystem where pharmaceutical companies have a duty to their shareholders to make as much money as they can. Um, they also, there's limited political ability to push back on that. And oh, by the way, guess who a major investor in pharma is? It's your money managers, pension funds, if you have a 401k, anybody that has any retirement savings, own some pharma stock somewhere in there. So we are all, in a sense, codependent. Fascinating way to look at it. And do you think, given some of the new legislation coming out of D.C., that we're going to see any sort of an impact around that? I think we will see some. Uh, there was a four-hour session on Monday on that. And I noticed that the pharma experts that were there and the, the consultants that work with them basically expressed concerns that the big question is, will this spill over into the uh, commercial side? And they, they think it will. So that the government's going to implement some of this price change negotiation, and that will, as, as usually does when you see yeah. Medicare do it, slide over into the commercial side. Right. And there is a price that will be set for each drug, and that price, they said, is going to be public information. So commercial payers will know what that is, and your members and your employers will know what that is. And that raises an interesting question. Do you think this will be like we've seen with the hospital situation, where Medicare has this rate, and then the hospitals are paying 240%, 400% of Medicare, we can begin to see that and begin to hear the justification from the system itself that I need that to offset what I'm losing over here? That was my original estimate and original guess, but 
After what I heard on Monday, I think there's hope that that may not happen. We'll see. It's a, it's an interesting world. Um, there will be pain with whatever we do to address costs, but the biggest pain will be if we do nothing and just let the train hit the wall and everything then will implode. The ideal would be to find a way. We don't want to pop the balloon. We want to let some air gradually out of it so that we are able to stay up there and continue to provide people's needs. Yeah, I like you have been around this for a long time. I remember the 90s costs, they're going through the roof. We can't afford it, we're gonna blow up the system. We're now 30 years later, <laughs> we're saying the same thing. Do you think there really is a wall that's gonna blow up the system or are we just gonna continue on this path for a much longer time? I think employers, certainly in the commercial space, are getting to where they, they can't go much farther. And the federal government, of course, has a debt problem. So there's a limit to, again, usual disclaimers. I am not a health economist. I probably could play one on TV, but I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely not. Uh, one of my mentors is a nationally known uh, health economist. And I asked him this question a decade ago how long do you think it's going to take for that to happen? And at that time, he said, uh, maybe two or three years. Mm -hmm. So it's continued to go past what anybody had expected it would. Right, and I know I happen to be reading some of the uh, healthcare news today, and I think the latest estimate was a family policy is now $24,000 a year, mm -hmm. which when you think about that against the average income of an American, that is a gigantic chunk of change. And people do not, you know, when you look at the consequences of this, people miss things like you don't see the jobs that are being outsourced overseas to countries where they have universal health care or labor is just cheaper in general. Essentially, the, the, one that, the one that really nailed this first, I think, was Uwe Reinhardt. And I remember he spoke at an ISPOR plenary session probably close to 20 years ago. And he said the employer has a specific pot of money to pay for each employee. You can spend that on salary, you can spend it on benefits, but when you hit the ceiling, you're there and there's, you can't go beyond that. And if you're just tuning in, we are in the company of John Watkins, PharmD, MPH, who managed the formulary process at Primera Blue Cross from 2000 to 2019 and currently serves as the director of Primera's PG-1 Managed Care Pharmacy Residency Program. Stay tuned for the rest of the story. Right, all right. I remember seeing much of his work about that. Just an incredible area to think about. And, uh, and we know that the impact of health care costs and benefits has kept employees from getting raises above inflation for years and really limited the income for, for individuals. So you've also published this book, Managed Care Pharmacy Practice, the second edition. Why did you choose to do this? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I, what I do mostly these days is teach and students need this perspective. So what I've created is a combination of a textbook and um, 
whatever you want to call the, the observations of over 40 years of practice. So what are the key areas that you focus on in the book? Well, you have basics, obviously. Um, I have some history in it. This one thing I haven't seen anywhere else is a, a real answer to the question how we got started down this road of unaffordability. And I happen to have a perspective on that because my great-grandfather was a country doctor on the Midwestern Plains. And my grandfather had a book on his bookshelf, which I have a copy of now, written by a doctor named Arthur Hertzler, who was on the prairies of Kansas at about this is turn of 19th to 20th centuries. And he's a great writer and, and an armchair philosopher. And so what he basically, he, his life spanned the time from when we had no modern medicine. He has a description in there of what a diphtheria epidemic would do to a community. It was a disease that parents most feared. It just took your children and there was nothing you could do. Over his lifetime, several developments. We had obviously vaccines that dealt with most of those childhood. We had the um, germ theory of disease developed and uh, aseptic surgery. Prior to that time, you, you basically couldn't do things like abdominal surgery. The patient would just die. Mm -hmm. You couldn't avoid the infection. So we developed a way to deal with that. Uh, we also developed surgical anesthesia. Uh, prior to that time, uh, the, the, about the most you could do was a limb amputation, which I've seen a, a uh, demo of how this was done. You essentially get, you load the patient with as much sedative as, as, as you can, and they use laudanum, which is a mixture of alcohol and opioid. And you get four strong guys to hold each limb, and you saw as fast as you can. And the, the um, standard for a good surgeon was you could cut through a leg in 45 seconds. Wow. So, uh, that was what you did before we had antibiotics. So then coming into the 20th century, you have penicillin, sulfonamides, and the rest is history. But all of this was still pretty inexpensive. Uh, before what I'm describing, doctors were cheap. They also couldn't do a whole lot for you. Hertzler says basically they were good at delivering babies, lancing boils, a few other things like that. He said the doctor came whenever he was called. Uh, he was eagerly awaited. He did the best he could, but he didn't have much. So then we started getting this technology as about the time that Hertzler and my great-grandfather were practicing. But they still had the same payment model. My great-grandfather primarily his patient population was mostly sharecroppers. They didn't have any money. So according to what one of his daughters wrote, they were, the family had, was cash poor, but they ate really well because people paid with farm produce, whatever they had. They gave you the best of what they had. So 
we went from there gradually into the 20th century. Medicine was still fairly inexpensive, but it was gaining technical capability. And so we created this expectation that medicine could do everything. And nobody disabused the public of that, unfortunately. So then we were on a roll with all these things that were relatively cost-effective and focused on primary and secondary prevention. And then we hit the mid-20th century and technology enters and you start getting things that are more expensive. But the expectations were still there. And by the time you got to the end of that century, we now we have this combination of an aging population that expects to be able to continue to do at 75 what we did at 50, and somebody else should pay for that. And I guess as you pointed out, it's also that we look to medicine, we look, well, the pill's going to solve this. I don't need to do anything else. I'm just going to take the pill, right? And then we move, in the book, we move from there through some basics, and then I talk about other things at the end of it, including the ethics of dealing with scarce resources in managed care, uh, which is something you don't hear too much about either. So let's get into that, because that's a really interesting area. Because I think about it and I say to myself, okay, what makes effective managed care? And I guess the underlying thing and something I've believed in for a long time is the reason our healthcare system is the way it is, is that we have an ethical Mm -hmm. problem. The underlying ethics of what we're doing is creating this cost, is creating this inappropriate utilization or under over depending on areas etc is that sort of what you're getting at yes and actually um i've learned a ton from a bioethicist named jim sabin i don't he's probably not still with us he stopped blogging but he had a blog for many years i think it was called health healthcare organizational ethics or something to that effect And he and a few other people, um, Norm Daniels was somebody that he co-authored with. Um, There's another book that he was involved in um, that the co-authors were uh, Steve Pearson, who's now at ICER, uh, and Zeke Emanuel, who, of course, was has done many things, including being one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act. But what they started saying, and this was really early 90s that this was floated, is that medicine, physicians, any of us that make patient care decisions have conflicting duties of fidelity and stewardship. So fidelity is your responsibility to the individual patient that you're treating to do the best you can for them, advocate for them, Physicians and pharmacists have this drilled into us in school. You have to do this. Nobody talks to you about the other responsibility, which is to steward resources for the benefit of all the other patients that are not in front of you at the moment. So that's where we've had to start saying, you know, there is this dual responsibility and somehow we have to find a way to balance those. It's an ethical dilemma. You can't, you're faced with a situation where you can't do all the good that you want to do, so you make tough choices. So, interesting, you bring that up. Does that then say to one that a 
population health-based approach is ultimately the way to go as long as you're considering that broader use of resources across that population? Yes, and when you're looking at population health, then you have to try to find ways to spread the resources that you have for that population as far as you can and do the things that have the most value. And again, managed care emphasizes primary and secondary prevention for those reasons. Uh, it's a lot easier to keep something from happening than it is to treat it after it does happen. Absolutely. And when you think about managed care, obviously there's been a huge focus on PBMs, on pharmacy, cost, etc. Where are you with all of that? That is not my primary area of expertise, but it looks to me like we do a lot of shifting the deck chairs around. Um, a former colleague of mine uh, who was chair uh, chairman of that staff model HMO's P&T committee for some years used to have a nice one-hour lecture based on the tragedy of the commons analogy, which is basically... This is something that goes at least back into the 1960s, the idea of a traditional New England town where you have a stockade around it, you have a pasture that is protected in the middle to graze the animals. And so if each farmer puts as many animals out there as they can, they overgraze the pasture and everyone loses. And so he would tell that story and then he would say, now let's go around and look at each of the farmers each of the stakeholders in this particular. And his conclusion was there is enough blame to go around. So stop pointing fingers at everybody else. Fix what you can. That is a fantastic approach. Something I've also mentioned at a conference, it's like we have this circular firing squad, but let's turn off that viewpoint and let's look and see what we can do ourselves to fix it. And if everybody does that, we'll be in much better shape. So just in closing, we've got about a minute and a half left or so, where do you think we go with this whole managed care pharmacy practices? Is it ultimately going to create much more of a population health type approach, or is it still sort of a way for companies to continue to do what they're doing? I think there is a, you know, there's an incentive which is driven by the Affordable Care Act and other things to bring payers and providers together because we both have aspects of population health management. And one of the things I'm trying to teach pharmacy students that are in this space is look at careers in the health system side where you can practice what we teach you in the managed care course, but take put that to work within the health system where you don't have the issue of being an outsider um, you, you are working with providers who see you as a team member. Uh, they trust you. They know that, they know that you're skilled and capable. Uh, I think that's where some of the work is not going to go away, but where it's going to be is the question. Fascinating. A, co a collaborative approach, the way to do it. Well, I'd like to thank you, John. It's really a pleasure to get you on. I'm looking forward to reading this book, Managed Care Pharmacy Practice. Thanks so much for joining us on Pop Health Week. 
pleasure. And that, dear listeners, concludes today's episode. A big thank you to our wonderful listeners for tuning in, and a special thanks to John Watkins, Farm D. MPH, who managed the formulary process at Primera Blue Cross from 2000 to 2019 and currently serves as director of Premier's PG-1 Managed Care Pharmacy Residency Program. Keep up with John's work by LinkedIn, www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash John Watkins. And if you enjoy our content here at Pop Health Week, we would love your support. Please like us on the preferred podcast platform of your choice. Share our show with your peers and do subscribe to catch up on upcoming episodes. Remember, we broadcast live on Healthcare Now Radio on Wednesdays, 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for our West Coast audience, tune in at 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. On behalf of the Pop Health Week team and Fred Goldstein, I'm Greg Masters, wishing you health and safety. Stay with us for more engaging health discussions. And until next time, take care.